John chapter 12, verse 12 is where we're going to start, and we'll be down, going down to verse 43. Um, so quite a, quite a bit of a chunk of scripture here to get through. Um, but it's interesting that Palm Sunday is, um, if you're not familiar with this at all, like maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe you're not familiar with what Palm Sunday is, like what in the world is with the palm branches? Um, well, we're going to see that in the scriptures today. But the, the main thing that happens on Palm Sunday is that this kicks off the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry before he's crucified and raised from the dead. So on Friday, he's crucified. But the Sunday before that, he enters into Jerusalem uh, in in this really grand and uh, just dramatic way where he comes in and the, the crowds are shouting at him and not like in a mad way, but actually in a really excited way. They're, they're giving him praise. They believe he's going to be their rescuer, their savior. Um, of course, we're going to see that that's all, their whole notion is going to be turned upside down. Um, but, but Palm Sunday kicks this whole Holy Week off uh, where Jesus enters into Jerus- to Jerusalem for the last time. Um, it's, it's a really uh, significant moment in his life because this is the beginning of the end for him. Uh, he, he knows this. He's not surprised by any of this. Um, but, but nonetheless, the events of Palm Sunday begin the, the very uh, acts of God to save us from our sins. And so this is a significant thing. Um, and, and we're going to see what this looks like here. Um, so, so let's start. I'm going to just start by reading uh, verse 12 through, uh, probably we'll get down to 18 or so. Maybe we'll stop somewhere in the middle and talk a little bit. But, but I want to just give us the kind of the overview of the day. And what I appreciate about John's account, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this event. Um, but most of them just kind of say, well, this is what happened. John actually gives us some of the reasons why this happened, which I think is helpful. So that's why I'm just deciding to focus on John's account of it. Um, they all uh, account for it, but John gives us a little bit more of the kind of the theology behind it all, which, is, which I think is helpful sometimes. So here's what it says. Okay, the next day, let's stop there. I know I said I'd read for a while, but let's stop there for a minute. Okay, the next day, what does that mean? Let's put this in context. What's happened? Well, it's, it's very important. It's very important. The, the prior day, Jesus had been in Bethany, this other town, um, and he had done this incredible miracle. He had raised Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, from the dead. So Lazarus was Mary and Martha's brother. He was ill. We read about this in chapter 11. Um, and he's ill. He's got this terrible sickness. We don't exactly know what he died from. Uh, but there were no hospitals. There was no modern medication. It was probably a brutal thing that he suffered. He ultimately, he was a young man, so he, he died from something. And Jesus shows up after he'd been in the tomb for several days. He had already started to decompose, or at least that's what they, they assumed was happening. And Jesus shows up and gets to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come on out of there, paraphrasing. And, and Lazarus gets up and walks out of the tomb. Now, the tomb, of course, would have been a cave, a type of cave that they would have put him in. It wasn't like buried under dirt like we do today. And so he walked right out of this tomb. And that's a big deal, right? Like, 
Jesus just raised a guy from the dead. That's crazy. And so the next day, all right, this is putting it into context. Here's what happens. The large crowd that had come to the feast, what feast? Well, we're talking about Passover, okay? The the day that the Jewish people commemorate their freedom out of uh, slavery in Egypt. This is still something that the Jewish people to this day celebrate every year right around Easter, it's no coincidence, okay? Easter and Passover kind of fall right, right on, in, in line because this is, this is when it was all happening. So there's this large crowd of people in Jerusalem who had come to the feast. And, and this is something that, you know, pre-COVID, right? They, they would all come and no masks and, and all that. And, and they would just, you know, all get sick and die somehow probably. But, but anyways, they'd all get there and they'd celebrate this feast. There's a huge crowd. And they, they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it had been written. This is from Zephaniah 9, verse 9. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning when he was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and and that had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Yeah, they're all talking about this, right? Because that's a big deal. Like, they all saw Jesus bring this dead guy out of a tomb, so they're talking about it. Now, verse 18 is significant. The reason why the crowd went to meet him. So John actually gives us why, why is there this big crowd of people laying down palm branches and shouting out Hosanna and all these things that they do. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. In other words, they had heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus had become, he was already a very popular figure in Galilee and, and around that region. Um, but now he's a superstar, right? He's like absolutely the biggest celebrity in their world at this point. And they're all, they've all heard that this man raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. And so they go out and they hear he's coming into Jerusalem. So they come out and why do they, so we call it Palm Sunday because they laid these palm branches down on the ground as Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. So what's that, what is that about? Well, the palm branches are, it's kind of like the red carpet today, right? It's like this sign of honor that, you know, celebrities honor themselves by running out this red carpet. Like none of us are running red carpets out for celebrities, but they do for themselves. But, but Jesus was an actual real deal guy, like, and they wanted to honor him. And so they laid these palm branches out for him. Um, it was a sign of honor and, and reverence and, and expectation. And so this is the scene. This is what Palm Sunday is. It's this crazy thing. And we can just imagine these massive crowds of people uh, there were probably hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Uh, most scholars believe that Jerusalem had a, a year-round regular population at this point in history of about 50,000. And, and they estimate that that at Passover could have expanded by four or five times. So just, I'm not a math guy, but that's just a lot of people. That's a ton of people. 
you know, gathering into this relatively small city. And we don't know how many people lined the streets for Jesus, but it was probably thousands. Um, and, and here they are. And what are they doing? They're, they're laying down these palm branches in honor of him. And they're crying something out. They're, they're saying something as he comes into Jerusalem. And they're saying, first, Hosanna, which is not an English word. Hosanna is an Aramaic word. Um, it's a word that can be translated, save us. Save us. Okay, so, so they're shouting, save us. And then they're also shouting, blessed or worthy is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So what's, what's happening here? Well, essentially, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? The people have heard that Jesus did this amazing thing, raising someone from the dead. And that has now convinced them that he is their king. He's the king that the Old Testament promised would come and, and rescue his people, right? Now, the, we've got to understand how politically charged this was in their day. Uh, the, the people of Israel were underneath the thumb of the Roman Empire. They weren't, the fr- they weren't a free state. They weren't a freed people. They weren't as enslaved in, in brutality as they were under the Egyptians, but they were still underneath the thumb of another government. They couldn't really run their own affairs. They had to run everything by the Romans. They, they didn't have real, real freedom. And so the, when the people of, of Israel are, are seeing Jesus doing these miracles— and, you know, they're pulling out all the stops for him because they believe he is the guy who's going to come in, who's going to take over uh, the Romans and defeat them through some military conquest. That's really fundamentally where they're at. They believe this. All their hopes, of course, get dashed by Friday, right? When, when, the, when the leaders of Israel put Jesus on the cross. Um, but... At this point in the story, they believe Jesus is going to be this incredible king, this king of Israel. And we're going to see that as we work through the text, we're going to see their expectations. And, and it's amazing because Jesus does not in any way stoke this imaginated story. He doesn't, he doesn't give it any credence. He tells them flat out in this passage that we're going to read that he's not there to be the king who's going to conquer a military might. He's He's going to be the king that suffers and dies. He's going to tell them that straight away. Um, but here's the point. I think the overarching point of, of, this, of Palm Sunday, of what we're going to see today, I think the big idea that we need to take away is that Jesus is our king, but he's not the king that anybody expected. He is the king that we need, though. He is the king that we absolutely need even if he's not the king we expect. I think that's the real heart of this message, right? That Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's an expectation of something that was never actually the plan. It was a misunderstanding or a misapplication of things that are true. Like, like think about this. What they're saying to him, everything they're saying is actually true, but not in the way that they're thinking it is. They're saying, Hosanna, save us. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's coming into the city to save them, but not from a political enemy, not from a military enemy, but from the ultimate enemy of sin and Satan. 
He's going to defeat all of the wrongs in the whole world. And they, but they have no concept of that. They're just thinking, okay, sweet. He's going to come in here and he's going to give us our earthly freedom. And that's, so they're, they're right and they're wrong. They say, blessed or worthy is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, that's just a direct quotation from Psalm 118, which we read this morning. They're just quoting the scriptures. But again, it's a misunderstanding of what that actually is pointing to. He is worthy. He is their king, but not in the way that they expected him to be. And there were even some glimpses of this as we, as we look at the story. There's some weird things that should have kind of tipped them off a little bit. Look at, look at the first thing. It says, Jesus found a young donkey. Now, actually, we read in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, he actually sent his disciples to go find the donkey, but he gets the credit for it because, you know, he's, he's in charge, right? Um, so the disciples go out and they find this young colt of a donkey, and they bring it back to, for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. Now, this is just bizarre because, like, donkeys have their use. They're, they're, they have purpose, but they're not majestic beasts that you would expect a king to ride on. And yet that's what he does, right? This, the Old Testament actually foretells of this and says that your king is going to be riding on a donkey's colt. That's kind of a ludicrous idea. It's kind of crazy because kings don't ride on donkeys. They ride on horses, these military beasts, these amazing creatures, right? That's, so, so already we're starting to see that Jesus is a little bit different than, the, than what should have been expected. And so here's, here he is, he's coming into Jerusalem. He's on this donkey, not even a fully grown donkey. He's on like this little donkey. It's just kind of a silly picture almost. But it, it's entering, it's, it's putting us into perspective of what Jesus has come to do. He hasn't come to be this military leader. He's come to be the humble savior who will suffer and die. We also see that the crowd came, as John tells us in verse 17, they were there because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So, so they are just there kind of to see the spectacle, right? And to, to see the show, to go, what, what's he going to do next? And we see this actually a lot with Jesus, even before this, where Jesus will do a miracle and then amazingly, tons of people will start coming out to see him, right? Because wh- why? Because they want to see the magic show, right? They, they, that's what they're, we're all the same. We, we'd all do the same thing. Right? But that's why they're there. They're not really there because they understand what this is about. They're there because they think he's going to have something crazy to show them. Okay, so Jesus is not the king that they expect. And, and by that, I mean he's not the king to give them some earthly power or deliverance. He's actually there to save them from their ultimate enemy of sin, but not from their earthly enemies. That's important. And and Jesus is going to ultimately display that. So going on to verse 19, let's keep reading this, this passage. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So this gives us a little glimpse of where the Pharisees are at. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. Um, They're the ones that are in political power. Um, There were several kind of, you can think of them as political parties, but uh, that's a little different than, than what we have in our society. But you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, kind of these two pri- primary groups. Uh, the Pharisees are the ones that have the, the dominant kind of numbers. 
They're, they're winning the number game. Sadducees are in the minority, but they're still kind of a, a player in, in the politi- political spectrum. But so the Pharisees are really calling the shots. And the Pharisees are talking to each other, seeing Jesus do this, come into the, to Jerusalem in this way. We actually know in from some of the other accounts of this story that they confronted Jesus and said, hey, make them stop shouting at you like this. Make them stop celebrating you. And Jesus' response to them was, well, if they don't do it, the rocks are going to cry out. Somebody's going to give me praise because I'm, I'm worthy of praise, right? And so he doesn't really deal with the crowds. But the, we can see here that the Pharisees are very jealous. They're, they say we're gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. So we're starting to see that they are becoming increasingly jealous of Jesus' popularity and fearful of their own power being taken away. But here's what's interesting. When they say, look, the world has gone after him, they didn't even have a clue how right they were. It's one of these things. I love it. Like John talks about this, uh, in, I think, in chapter 19 as well, where, where the, the Pharisees or the scribes or somebody from that kind of group of people will say something that they mean kind of in one way, but it actually has way more truth than they realize. Another example is when Caiaphas, who was one of the high priests, um, he said, basically they were coming up with this scheme to kill Jesus. And he said, okay, we need to let this one guy die so that everybody else can live. And he had no idea how right he was. <laughs> like no idea. But he, what he was talking about in the context was, well, if we don't kill Jesus, the Romans are going to kill all of us. So let's let him die so that we can live. And, and yet what's actually happening is Jesus is going to die and everybody will live who believes in him, right? And so here again, we see this happening where they say the world has gone after him and they have no clue how right they were. Because what John tells us next is it actually shows that. It displays it. Look, look at verse 20. He says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these were people who were not Jewish. They didn't live in Israel. They were outsiders. But they came to worship at the feast. So they were obviously searching for some answers. And here you have these non-Jewish Gentile people who are just referred to as the Greeks. Um, And here's, here's what verse 21 says. So, these people, these, these Greeks came to, to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. See, so they've, they want to see Jesus. These are, not, these are not even Jewish people. Like most of Jesus' ministry, the vast, vast majority, has been to the Jewish people at this point. And yet the world, represented here by these Greek people, the world is going after him. And they want to see Jesus. And... Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Okay, so they're, they're saying, hey, there's these Greek guys that want to see you. And so we expect the answer to be, yeah, let them come, or no, I don't have time. or right? But that's, the answer isn't anything remotely like that. Look, look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's keep reading. Uh, now, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that, that, that it had thundered. But, you know, we're dense people, aren't we? <laughs> they hear this voice from heaven and they're like, oh, that was just thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So there were some people who were maybe catching on a little bit. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He showed this, or he said this, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right, so let's stop and talk a bit about what we're reading here. Um, the Pharisees understood rightly the world's gone after him. John then tells us about this story about these Greek people who, it, this may not have happened on Palm Sunday. It might have happened Monday or Tuesday. We don't know exactly where it falls in the timeline, but, but John puts it here for a reason to show and to display that, yes, Jesus is drawing people from all corners of the earth to himself. And that's the mission of Jesus as our king, that he is the king who is going to draw all people to himself. Right? He, he's going to draw people from all tribes, tongues, languages, nations. Nobody is excluded from this salvation. And, and that was not even a concept in the minds of the Pharisees at the time, but that's what's happening. And so then Jesus is told that these Greeks want to come and see him, and he doesn't actually say, yes, come and let them see me. He just goes into this long kind of explanation of what's going to happen. And he says a few things that are uh, noteworthy. He says in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What, what's he talking about there? Like, this is not, this isn't like a farming lesson, but this is a lesson that all of us should, should understand, right? Like a seed doesn't do anything unless it's in the ground, decomposes, and then it spr sprouts forth a new, a new life, right? That then, then produces much more than that one seed on its own could be. And so what Jesus is talking about here, of course, I think it's clear from the context. He's talking about himself dying, but ultimately through that death, creating life for many, for all who would trust in him. That, that his death will create life abundantly for those who trust in him. So his death, he's, he's alluding to his death here. He's not talking about grains of wheat. He's not talking about seeds. He's He's talking about himself, but he's using that analogy. And then he says, so whoever loves his life loses it. 
whoever hates his life in this life will keep it for eternal life. He's not literally saying you have to hate yourself, right? He's, he's saying that you have to, by comparison to your love for Jesus, you need to lay down yourself. You need to get over yourself. And if you can't get past yourself, there, there's not, you're not going to have the life that Christ has for you. Every time we enter into obedience to Jesus, it's laying down our preferences for the greater good of his glory and our joy in him. And so he doesn't actually answer the question about whether these people from Greece or wherever they're from, they're just categorized as Greek people. So they may just live you know, somewhere outside of Israel. But he doesn't say that they can come see him. We don't know if they ever did. But he's giving us a bigger perspective, right? He's, he's laser focused on his mission. And his mission is to go to the cross. He, in other words, I think in some ways, I think he just doesn't, have time to see these Greek people right now because this is the focus of his, of his ministry, going to the cross. He then di- directly refers to that, right? He says, verse 27, my soul is troubled. Okay, let, let's think about that for a minute. My soul is troubled. <laughs> um, Jesus understands anguish because he lived it, he experienced it. This is good news for us because we all are troubled people too. Maybe not right today, maybe you're having a great day, but you'll be troubled sometime. We all are, we're, right? And so we have this king who, is, who exists to draw all people to himself through his life, death, and resurrection. And he is at the same time not immune from the sufferings of the world. He understands it. He's, he's troubled in his soul. And so when you're troubled and when I'm troubled, he, he understands us. And we can lean into him. This is why the scriptures tell us in 1 Peter 5 that we can cast our cares on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He is troubled for you. And that, that means, yes, he's, he's going to the cross to take care of your sins. That's the point of all this. But there's a practical point of seeing Jesus as our Savior who can empathize with us, who can understand our trouble because he was troubled in his soul. This, in other words, Jesus is not just going to the cross in this robotic way like we're He's got this stiff upper lip like the Brits talk about, you know, where he, he's not just going without emotion. He's actually deeply troubled in what's going to happen to him. And we can see that. So he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So his soul is troubled and he's going, do I, do I ask God to save me from this? He goes, no, this, it's for this purpose that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is absolutely laser focused on the cross. He knows this is going to be this is going to be the end for him until he's raised on the other side. But he's still in anguish over it. There's there is a, a there is a reality we've got to recognize. Jesus understands our trouble because he's experienced that trouble. But at the same time, he didn't give up on us. He went all the way to the cross for us because he loves us. So then, of course, he says at the end of this section, um, 
in verse 32, when, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So circling back, all the way back to where the, the, the Pharisees say, look, all people are coming for him. The world's gone after him. Right? Circling back to that, Jesus says, goes, yeah, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. And then John tells us this. He tells us something interesting. He says, he, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is being upfront with people. He's not, he's not pretending that he's going to be this military leader. He's telling them flat out right here, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised up from the earth. But when I am crucified, I will draw people from everywhere to myself. And we actually know that this isn't one of those things that went over people's heads. As we keep reading, they understood this. They understood what he was talking about. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? All right, so go back, flip back to Psalm 118. I don't have it up on the big screen for you. But this is where they're getting this. Okay, now, as we, uh, as we look at this passage, um, he is, they're, they're reading this and they're going, okay, um, th- this is what the the, Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to be for us um, this, this ultimate Savior, right? So they just read or recited the verse 25 and 26, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So that is kind of, in a, in a nutshell, that's what Hosanna means. And then verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But if you look back up at verse 17 and 18, David writes here, I think at least we assume it's David who's writing this. I guess it's not attributed to anyone. But it says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So, so they're going, okay, so the scriptures say in this same context, you're not going to die. Like, so why are you talking crazy like you're going to go and die? And then to be even more uh, on the nose is they're, they're perhaps thinking about Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, which says, you have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So there, there, and, and there's many other passages like that in the Old Testament that talk about how God is going to establish the, the throne of David forever. So you got to understand the confusion that these people are having because they're thinking he's going to be the king in the line of David, which he is. They're right about that. But again, they're, they're not understanding this in between Jesus is going to be the king on the throne forever and ever. He is right now because he's been raised from the dead. That's where he sits right now on the throne. 
But they didn't understand that there was actually going to be a crucifixion in the middle of that. And so they, they don't get it. And they're hearing Jesus talk about what kind of death he's going to die. And they actually are like, they get it. They actually understand what he's talking about. They're going, wait a minute. This, this doesn't line up. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. He's not going to die. So I think their expectation is, or at least their understanding of it, would have been that the Christ would enter into the city. He would take over the, the government. He'd, he'd overtake the, the captors, the Romans in this case. And then he would set himself up on the throne of David. And then he would just stay there for eternity. And they would just keep on moving on. But that's not what happens. There are things in between that they didn't know or see. And so they asked the question, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So now they're, they're, you, you hear this, right? They're pivoting away from Jesus now. They're going, well, if you say you're going to be crucified, that doesn't line up with our theology of this, so you're not the guy, so who is he? They're, they're, they've already basically written him off now. Like, well, if it's not you, who is it? And look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is a sad story in some sense, right? Because the people of Israel are rejecting their, their king. They're rejecting their king because he doesn't align with their interpretation of what he would do. And so Jesus says to them, listen, you have the light among you for a little while yet. And I think he's referring here to just the next five or so days. It's like, you've got the guy you're searching for. He's right in front of you. I'm going to show you who I am. Walk in the light. Don't let this darkness overtake you. Don't let your doubts dissuade you from believing in me. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And they didn't. They didn't. The crowds just gave up. And so you got to understand, like, we, we wonder why. Okay, Sunday they're crying out, Hosanna. And then by Friday they're crying out, crucify him. Where's the disconnect? Well, this is the disconnect. They didn't believe. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was. They didn't believe he didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit their understanding. And, and so the, the scriptures continue to tell us in verse 38, so the word, of, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, this was all talked about in, in, back in Isaiah. He told, he told them that this is going to happen. Look at what they quote. John quotes Isaiah in two places. Lord, first, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed? Well, the answer is none of, none of these crowds. The disciples believed to a, to a degree, right? They, they struggled in it. There's no doubt. We're going to see that on Friday. They struggled with this too. But, but there, was, there was something about the crowds that just wouldn't believe. Therefore, listen, listen to this. This is crazy. It kind of blows your mind a little bit. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. Okay? Because again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him, spoke of Jesus. Now, why in the world would God blind the eyes of these people? That doesn't seem like, it doesn't line up, right? God wants all people to be saved, right? So why wouldn't he open their eyes? Well, I think in some sense, this was a temporary blinding. Some of these people did come to Christ after the resurrection. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that thousands upon thousands of these people came to Christ. Not, maybe not these exact people, but thousands and thousands of people from Israel and around came to Jesus as the disciples preached the gospel, right? There, this is a temporary moment in time, but it had to be this way because if the people weren't blind to who Jesus is, he would never have been crucified because when Pontius Pilate gives the option between Barabbas and Jesus, if they believed in Jesus, they would have said, kill the, kill the guy who's murdered a bunch of people and let Jesus go. But they didn't, they they. They didn't believe. And so this, this was all necessary to pave the way for the crucifixion of Christ. This is God's sovereign hand working in, in the whole storyline to get Jesus to the cross. God is sovereign. He's in charge. And he's, and he's getting everything lined up just right. So Isaiah prophesied that their eyes would be blind and their hearts would be hard and that's where they're at. But look at verse 42. Nevertheless, so even though you have these crowds who disbelieve, nevertheless, many of the, even of the authorities believed in him. Wow, okay. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Another sad little bit of the story here, right? But, but again, there's, there's, the, John gives us a glimmer of hope in this. And he goes, look, yeah, the, the crowds don't believe in Jesus. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes are blind. But nonetheless, there were even some of the authorities that believed in Jesus. But they were, at this point in time, still too fearful they didn't want to risk their positions and their place in society. If you were put out of the synagogue, you were out. Society disowned you. The whole world at that time surrounded, was, was surrounding the synagogue. If you weren't a part of the synagogue, you weren't anything. You couldn't have any meaningful friendships or business dealings or anything. It was all, all out the window. So they were fearful of man and they... They didn't, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
so, so again, just putting all this in, um, we have to we have to recognize that Jesus is this king who's rejected by men so that he could go to the cross but now that we stand on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ we actually have this this king who doesn't just blind our eyes but he actually opens our eyes to faith that Jesus is the king that we need who can turn our doubts into faith. And, and that's what we see happen over and over again. When, when we get down to it, the, the people who saw Jesus on that day do miracles and they still didn't believe in him. You know, I, I think it's important for us to not get super critical of these people though. Because we can go, okay, wait, they saw the miracles. They literally saw him. Many of them saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw this and they still didn't believe. That's what John tells us, right? Though he had done so many signs or miracles before them, they still did not believe in him. That's astounding to us on this side of it, right? Hindsight's 20-20. We're like, oh man, how, how dense could they be? But I just want to contend with you that every one of us does the same thing every day. We do. Whenever we act out in some sinful action that dishonors or disobeys God, we are functionally or practically not believing in him. So here's what we need. We need to not judge the people who lived in his time because we would have been right there with them. But what we need is to be honest. Be honest with ourselves. Be honest about ourselves. Be honest that without Jesus, we couldn't see anything. Without Jesus opening our eyes to who he is, we'd be in darkness. If it wasn't for Jesus' amazing grace to open the eyes of the blind, yours and mine, we would still be lost in our sins. And, and, and when we do stumble back into darkness, and we all do, we've just spent like five weeks walking through Romans 8 to talk about that reality, that we do stumble into darkness. When we do that, we need to, to see Jesus again for who he is so that we can quickly turn back to him in faith and know that Jesus is the one who gives us faith. This is alluded to back in Psalm 118. Again, I want to just point this out. Um, Verse 22 through 24. I think this is a good place to land. Look at what it says. The stone that the builders rejected, the stone being Christ, that was rejected by the builders, being the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel at that time, that stone that's been rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's doing. It says, it is marvelous in our eyes. Guys, it is the Lord's doing that Jesus is marvelous in your eyes. God has done that for you. And then it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now that's true every day. But that verse in its context is talking about the eyes of the Lord 
or excuse me, our eyes being opened by the Lord to, for Jesus to be marvelous to us. That day, the, any day that you see Jesus as marvelous is a day that you should rejoice and be glad in. We have an amazing king. He's not the king we expected. He's, not the, he's certainly not the king we deserve. But he's the king who will draw us to himself. He's the king who will sympathize with our weaknesses and our troubles. He's a king that will ultimately turn our doubts into faith. We need to look at him and see him for who he is. The marvelous cornerstone who was rejected by the builders, but that we can receive. So let's pray. Um, Father, I pray we would receive you today. Every one of us. I know we, many of us have done that at some point in our life, but we need to do it again and again, and not, a, not a, in order to keep ourselves saved or right with you, but to keep our hearts aligned with you. So I pray, Father, you would help us do that, that you would open up our eyes to see that the, that the cornerstone would be received and be marvelous in our eyes. Lord, would you do that for us? Your word tells us that this is your doing. And so we pray you would do it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.